Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. I'm Andy Schmidt here with Nick Gibson and Jill Reese, and we are back for part two of our divorce. You know, we're, we, this is part two, and I think this will probably be the last one. Um, but in the last podcast, we kind of talked about the historical context and and like you know how did we get here as a culture to where divorce is kind of like really, really common. And, um, in this one, we're going to talk more about how should, uh, we as Christians maybe like, I don't want to say the, I don't want to say the wrong words here. And I know that we just talked about this, but how should we like love people who have been divorced? How should we, um, wow. I want to say it, deal with it. I, I, I will cut that out, <laughs> but I just really want to say it. I'm telling you guys right now, I really want to say deal with it. I don't know how to say it right now. Uh, but anyways, I think, like, yeah, how I should think we love these people? I think it's more okay to say deal with, to deal with it when you're talking about a thing. I think that people get right. a little okay. hurt when you yeah. say deal with, deal with you a person because it, it kind of assumes right. that like, you're okay. just too much for me to have to deal with. Like I, I shouldn't have to. Okay. Or it's a pro- you're, you you're are like a too problem. much and not enough at the same time. Yeah. You are the problem. Yeah. Sure. Be a little less of this, like the gesture to hiccup and how to train your dragon. Okay. You know, kind of deal. So I've never seen how to train your dragon. <laughs> it's it's one of the 20 best movies of the last 20 years, probably. That I would just, say. No. Way. It's good. No. Oh, no, it's it really is. No. It's a, it is. An, no, it's, I mean, it, it, it very well may be, may be the best Pixar movie. I think it probably is the best Pixar movie. And it's, it is a, it is a legitimately, up? it is a legitimately great movie. The the follow ups I'm not sure is good. I didn't look them as much, but yeah, they're not. I think it's my one of my oldest daughter's like second favorite movie or something like that. Anyway, um, moving on to so I think I think it'd be good to do a little bit of a disclaimer at the beginning of this to say that um, it's impossible not to hurt people's feelings or to offend people when talking about divorce because um, the reason why there are a few situations in which Jesus actually affirms divorce is because human beings are so corrupt and so difficult and so broken and so hurt and so unwilling to face problems and so on that divorce is going to have to happen sometimes. Like, like there's never, there's never been a human culture in which families didn't break up sometimes. And uh, that has to happen. It Mm -hmm. will happen. It's real. We can't pretend it doesn't. We can't demonize people for whom it, it happens. And simultaneously at the same time, human beings are quitters. And the worst thing to quit on is your family if you shouldn't. And so there have to be all kinds of ways in which we encourage people, including public shame, hurt, demanding laws, and so on, to tell people not to quit on the fam- their families. You cannot do that. And so like, because those th- things kind of overlap, mm-hmm. it's impossible to talk about this and not like hurt people's mm-hmm. feelings. You just cannot do it. it. No matter what you do unless each of us make sure that we just, we recognize that there's a huge overlap here and we just can't let our feelings get hurt because we don't have to take it personally. It's impossible because you have to speak against divorce. If you're a Christian, like, Mm -hmm. like a lot and you have to love and serve divorced people and people who are subject to the the problems of divorce. I mean, it's just, this is just a reality and there's some other subjects like this, but this is one of the worst. Mm Yeah. Yeah. So we just uh, get started right away. I think in the last podcast, we talked a little bit about the importance of marriage. We didn't talk about it a lot. And I think it'd be good to start this podcast maybe by talking about, because I think our culture, because divorce is on the rise and because it's, you see it all around, we come desensitized to 
divorce and how how bad it could be for marriage and like then we kind of become desensitized to like what marriage is truly for and so the first question i want to ask is just kind kind of like a broad question but what is the purpose of marriage like and why why should we hold marriage so highly why as christians do we hold marriage so highly like what why is it a big deal because i think they could be easy for some people especially i have friends who might just like listen to this and be like hey who like who cares if somebody gets a divorce is not that big of a deal but it but it is and so why is marriage so important and what's the purpose of marriage and what does it represent Mm -hmm. either you can go um my my first response is that it's one of the divine institutions and so it's one of the formational institutions for how people are formed and so um in our culture marriage has become about personal happiness like most things have and we've lost sight of how it forms people and families and that it's for creating families and being hospitable to um to life inside of your home and forming life and people. And so that's why divorce is so devastating is because when that is broken, the formational community of the family is broken. Yeah. I mean, that's basically Mm -hmm. point blank. I don't, Nick, if you do, do you have anything to add to that or not? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think marriage is the is the um, the union of the complementary sexes, so it's creational. Um, God created woman for the man to solve the problem of being not good for a man to be alone, and his, his solution is not another man, but actually a woman. Right. So there's a complementary natural nature between the man and the woman, and for their mutual care, caring for each other, also for their work in the creation mandate, which is to take dominion over the earth and to fill it. That is, it's procreative and constructive or productive, um, both to work and to raising and rearing children. God makes clear that his desire is not just for procreation to happen, but for people to be nurtured within a context in which it's likely for them to be godly offspring is the language the book of Malachi uses. So um, it's also a, it's a contractual covenant. And so to reject it is a objective, legal, and moral betrayal of someone um, in there, there, and part of the reason for that is that it functions throughout the life stages of life. It's till death parts you. And so it moves through different life stages and people get different things out of it at different life stages. And so the, what marriage is, is marriage is for and what it does actually evolves throughout the course of human life, but is useful and good throughout all the courses and life stages of human life. So those are maybe just some other things. I just wanted to clarify okay. briefly, Andy, to for our listeners that yeah. um, divor- when you when Andy says divorce is quote on the rise, um, there's a little bit of an uptick, um, but for the most part, what we mean is is that divorce is five times the rate it was at its lowest in the formation of our country in the late 1800s, and it has been moving. It moved up very steadily until the 1980s to five times what it originally was, and then has come down a little since then. Um, but it's also um, one of the reasons why it's less prevalent. That's because people have been getting married less. Right. What Maggie said last time, and that's actually a, a, a bigger issue. The reason why divorce is coming down is just because people don't get yeah. married at all. And people are like, well, maybe that's good because now there's not divorces. But it's not because because they're still having children together. And they're still saying they're committed to each other. And then they're still abandoning one another. So mm-hmm. they're just leaving abandonment open, more legally open to themselves and then doing it even more often. And so this is not a good 
trend. And also we need to realize that this is demographically focused. College educated people are getting married more and staying together more than, than like in recent history and people of lower classes and lower education with fewer resources that are harmed more by the destabilization of marriage um, are getting married less. And this is, this is a classic rich people, educated people hurting poor people that the kind of behavior that rich people and educated people could engage in and not completely destroy them, their lives. They have taught poorer people to do who can't deal with the consequences of it. So as to destroy their human and social capital that, and they don't have the liquid capital that's just flat money to overcome it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the people who can actually afford nannies are the people who stay married and get married and, and don't divorce. And so it's become a huge inequality issue. And if you look at the biggest things driving inequity in this country, like real inequality between racial groups and cultural groups and social groups and class groups, this is, this is probably the biggest in that it's, it creates the most and is the most determinative. Because when you look at, for example, um, family incomes going down, like, like you'll hear people say all the time, you know, family incomes have been static for 30 years. That's not true for married couples. What's happened is the reason why, quote, family incomes have come down is because there are so many more one-person families. And because people don't get married and form families and grow in wealth because they've married and stuck together, their wealth is destroyed because of it. and They don't make any more money than people made 40 years ago. But people who get married and stay married and have families are much better off than they were 40 years ago. So it's a huge economic problem too, which gets back to the question of what is marriage for? When God says it's for the welfare and happiness of all mankind, or that's what it says in the marriage service, it is for economic and social and human capital reasons as well. And a lot of these things are things people don't think about. And so they think that they can break the bonds and it's not gonna make a big deal. And it's partly because they have actually never knew what marriage was about. And so they can't possibly know what divorce is about. Well, I got a question. Are we are we mixing things up too much when we're talking about like the 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 Christian church in in America versus like just non Christian people? Like, um, we talked about this is like a rich people and poor people thing, and there's inequality in that. But my my question is that as Christians, like we all have the same Bible, and we all have the same scriptures. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't like we. Sh- th- there is no. I always just hate the idea of, of Christians blaming anybody else for their own problems or like mm-hmm. you, it's your personal responsibility as a Christian. Now, outside of the Christian, outside of the church, we judge that differently. But in the church, it's not it's nobody else's problem but yours if you get divorced. Like, right. I don't you know what I mean? If anything, it because divorce is high in the evangelical church as well. Uh, well, Nick, you would know more of the statistics, I think, but. I think it ruins our witness of there, then there's even more reason for anyone to not um, to yeah. get divorced. So, yeah. So, yeah. So when it comes to like Christians and so there's, a, I mean, there's like nine points I want to make based on what Andy and you just said, I, let me, let me try to just make a couple of these. So um, what I would say, personal responsibility is a human reality that is moral for everybody. Mm-hmm. I think what Andy is trying to get at is that the church as a institutional body, does not have a responsibility to judge those who are not believers. Right. So we, that is the local church doesn't quote judge that is engage in church discipline relative to people who aren't even believers. However, marriage is not a merely spiritual institution. It's an anthropological one. That is, it's a human institution. We, we we relate to it and we benefit from it as human beings and we subvert it and are harmed by breaking it as human beings. That has nothing to do with our faith. Marriage is what it is. And it affects us as humans as it does. 
Now, our Christian faith can help us understand it. It can help us have better marriages. It can teach us how we're supposed to handle it and our moral responsibilities to it. But it doesn't change the fundamental reality that's built into creation that is inescapable to all people, no matter what your religion is, on the basis of the nature of what human union, bonding, procreation, intimacy, and all those things are. Does that make sense? So in that sense, the difference between Christians and Mm non-Christians here is none at all. Right? Marriage is what it Mm -hmm. is, no matter what your beliefs are. Right? Um, okay. Well, I forgot the other things I was going to say. They were useful. I forgot the so point for the purpose of this podcast. So, yeah, Joe, what did you say? What I I said that the, the, divorce in the church. Um, I misunderstood Andy's question. Yeah. So when we say is, is divorce lower among quote evangelicals, um. The, a little. The, the, the answer is a little. And the, and the question is, well, what actually makes a difference? Is it evangelical mm-hmm. doctrine or saying that you're a born-again believer? And the answer is no, apparently, apparently not. Where you see a big difference in divorce rates is not in labeling people born-again Christians or biblical Christians or Roman Catholics or whatever. Where you see it is whether or not people go to church twice a month or more. That's where you see it. If people go to church twice a month or more, there is a radical, a very significant decline in divorce rates. Very significant. And if people don't, so if you have a quote, born again, evangelical who doesn't go to church, their divorce rates are the same as everybody else's, which makes perfect sense to me. If you don't have the discipline to get up in the morning and go to Mm -hmm. church on Sunday morning, if Mm -hmm. you won't do what it takes to make your life better in God, why would you do the things it takes to make your marriage better? Right. If you have indiscipline, if you don't have vision, if you're not thinking about the future, if you're not thinking developmentally or any of those things, that's true for most things in your life, probably. And the two deepest spiritual long-term things in your life is your relationship with God and your relationship with your spouse, right? Plus, at, when you go to church twice a week or twice a month, you get taught about how to live, including relative to marriage and forgiveness and hope and you know, loving other people and serving mm-hmm. them and all those things. And all those things are beneficial to all relationships, including marriage. And so what you're doing at church two, twice a month is learning how to love your spouse. So that's where you get to see a, a significant difference. Marriages are good when people become better people and they work on their relationships and their relationship with God. Plus, there's all kinds of healing and growth and godliness that happens if you really know God and that helps with your marriage. And there's Okay. Do you want you have anything to say? I also I th- I wonder how much of it is also that you're in a community of people who are affirming your marriage and supporting you and helping you when there's issues as well. Because there's that community. Well, that was I I was gonna go into uh kind of like the first question, which I guess it kind of has to do with community because um, this was sent in by somebody. And so um, I'm going to read the question and then we can discuss it. And I think it, it's going to pull things back into the church and how should the church deal with, mm-hmm. deal with these types of things? Cause that's kind of what I want to talk about mostly here. Uh, so here's the question. Since there are biblical reasons for divorce and since some of them aren't as cut and dry as adultery and abandonment, what are the proper steps uh, a couple and the church could take to decide if their case would warrant a divorce. Um, and this, I mean, this is probably going to be different for every church, but what would you say, what would either of you guys say? Well, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I think it probably depends on what you imagine some of those things are. So we talked in the last podcast about whether or not um, Wade Grudem's argument that in First Corinthians 7, it says in such cases relative to abandonment, and we're supposed to take from that cases that are on the same moral magnitude as abandonment are legitimate cases for divorce. 
um, if we agree with that, um, or if we're just expanding the definition of abandonment to cover some things like like significant abuse. Um, I think I think I honestly think Maggie's answer was helpful, where she said the answer is not you. Yeah. If you're in a marriage, yes, you're not objective enough to make that decision in most cases. Now you got to be careful with that a little bit, but um, but generally speaking, I would say you want outside counsel. You know. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that does get at the importance of the the family of the church and especially during seasons of hardship, like if you're considering getting a divorce, that's the time to talk with people and get the help that you need, um, both individually and discerning if that's right for your situation. Um, But also there's so many factors playing into whether or not someone gets divorced and why, why they think that's a good choice or not. And the church needs to be both a hospital for, the, I mean, there's going to be past wounds. Our sins are connected to our wounds. So there's, there's things going on deep under the surface in each of those people that need to be sorted through in community. And then there's also accountability that needs to happen for sin. So, and, and mm-hmm. wrong choice. So I think in those moments is really crucial for the church not to back away, <laughs> um, but to press in to community and to be in each other's lives right. in that way. Yeah. Okay. So I, I have, I just thought of something when I, cause I could see this happening um, where somebody's a couple are thinking about getting a divorce and they go to their church elders and they try to figure this out and they don't like the answer that they get. So then they go to a different church and they do it until they basically find the answer that they like. How important is it to stay within your church community when such? Cause I feel like, I don't know. I, I feel like with the lack, we talk about lack of self-control and lack of people are just generally not, not as godly as we should be here in the United States. And so I can see that happening. And so my question is at, like, at what point do you just have to say you got to suck it up and just listen to what these people say and not go? Because a lot of times people are going to get the answer that they don't want. If the church is do, like kind of based off of what Nick said in the last podcast, that like most of the time you probably shouldn't get a divorce, um, and which means that most of the time you're going to get the answer that you don't want. Then how how can somebody kind of work within that like frustration with the church without just going and abandoning the church and going to a different church and a different mm-hmm. church and a different church. Cause that could, I could see that being yeah. a complete mess. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I th- one of the things I, I always tell people, and I say this from the pulpit a lot actually is don't wait to talk mm-hmm. to someone, right? Like don't wait a decade and build up a lot more resentment. The more resentment you have, the harder it is to do anything good. And um, when you, when you're starting to have problems in your marriage is, is, isn't enjoyable. Like you're like, you're not, you just don't like the person and you're, you're, you're starting to struggle. You know, don't wait until you like, can't take it anymore. And you feel like you just have to give up and you are totally emotionally disconnected. I mean, like get help earlier for two reasons. One is it's easier to fix. And secondly, um, your church elders and pastoral team and whoever's helping you can get to know you better over time. And so like, if things deteriorate in your marriage, rather than get better, this is a person who's walked with you for a while. So I, I was working with a couple not too long ago where I've, I mean, I've worked with them on and off for seven years and there has been no improvement in their marriage. It's gotten a little worse. And they finally were like, look, I, we're going to, we're going to file for divorce. And I was like, listen, um, I hate to see you do it. 
but I don't see any evidence that anything's going to change. Cause, cause I'd been, I'd been working with them for seven years. Right. Whereas if they would have walked in my office and said, we just keep fighting, we just, blah, 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 and they told me some details, I'd just be like, okay, well you should, we should fix this. Like, let's not quit. Right. But like in that case, um, one person in particular was holding, holding the entire family intractably hostage, unwilling to deal with their stuff and making all kinds of excuses for it. And, um, do you still think that's sin to get, to get divorced in that case? Yeah. I don't know. You know, I'm not in their house to see what abuse means. You know what I mean? Like usually the families like that, they're like, this is so abusive. Right. And they're, they're, they're essentially arguing that like they're being driven apart. This is a tantamount to abandonment or it's on that level. And so, so the, the, but the, and the question with abuse is always the degree, right? Like we all misuse each other. That's what sin is. It's the injustice of misusing each other. And so like uh, we all abuse each other in the most minimalist definition. And very few of us um, abuse each other on the most maximalist definition. So the question is, look at what degree is abuse sufficient to end a relationship? And and that is something that is partly subjective, but it's partly ob- observational. I can't observe it. I'm not at their house when it's at its worst. And so I can't tell you, right? And most people have extremely distorted perceptions of what's happening in their lives, if they're, especially if they're in that dysfunctional relationship. And so they're not telling you an accurate account in your office. So how do you get access to the, to the, the data that by which you would answer this question? The answer is you can't. And so mm. you just have to say, look, at the end of the day, this is your decision. I'm telling you what Jesus says about divorce. You have to decide whether or not this amounts to it. It's not obvious enough for me to engage in church discipline if you divorce. Um, you've gone through the process with the others as much as you could. And so in that case, I, I can't tell them it's right or wrong, but I also don't do anything to do church discipline, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas in cases of like open adultery, unrepentant adultery, like I will like, I, we do church discipline, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Andy, your question was how, what, what should a person do when they're in that situation? Should they stick with their church or leave? And right. yeah, I you can't control what they do. So get so right. So getting all. involved with your church early is one <laughs> yes. way to handle that. Yeah, I think also observing how your church handles conflict and personal people's personal problems before yours is also important. Um, but I do I do agree that like if you bounce, um, that usually says more about you than your mm-hmm. church. And though there is a lot of a lot of churches handle these things very poorly, though mm-hmm. I mean that is true. Yeah. I think it, yeah, it does require on the church's end, not being, um, not reacting with shock or (laughs) surprise at this sort of, at these sort of issues because it's sin and people struggle in their marriages and that we should expect that. And so to have a really open arms, we want to help you through what you're going through whenever it comes up is really important. But then on the personal responsibility level of the couple, it does require godliness and personal humility to open your life up like that. Uh, And so having that posture, especially when it comes to your marriage and allowing people to speak into your marriage at any point is really important because when you have those deeper issues, then it's not this huge mess to untangle. And it's not, you're not, um, unwilling to present it to someone else. 
I think I mean, this sounds like I feel like a, a lot of in talking about divorce or I mean, I, me and Jill have talked about it and I've been talking about it with some of my friends as well. It does feel like t- to an extent with this topic that it's there. Yeah, there's no clear cut answer because every situation is so different. But I want to shift into kind of talking about um, how what do we do with like the church um, being able to like support kids who have been like a victim of divorce. Cause I think that's a huge deal. And Jill, I want to hear what you have to say about this first. Cause I, your parents were divorced, yes. right? Mm-hmm. I'm not wrong about that. So how, how, what's, cause I don't think that the church does a good job in this. A lot of times, I think it's a very confusing area. And, uh, and, and if you, and if like you haven't grown up in a divorced home, it's hard for you to like know how to even react to, to that. So, what's the best way for the church to support these kids, to love these kids and to, you know, just be good role models to um, who have grown up in divorce homes who are probably dealing with a lot of stuff like internally and stuff like that. So what's your answer? I I would say it actually is true for the people who have been divorced to the parents. So beyond the kids, um, mm-hmm. because in, so in, I grew up in a church a lot like high point um, a Bible believing church. It was a really, really good church. So I want to say that up front. Um, and my parents got divorced and it was a small town. So a lot of it was widely known what was going on. Um, but my experience was that people just didn't really talk about it to us as kids. We didn't know how to, we, we, it just was silent about the issue. And I saw also my parents, whether they were the abandoned spouse or not, like their friends left too. And so that's the hardest part is um, because the culture says divorce is not a big deal. And then when the church doesn't respond, because it's hard, it's a sensitive topic. It's hard to know what to say. It's hard to know what to do. It's really messy. It feels like someone's private business. That was one of the hardest things because I didn't know it was a big deal. But also I had all these dysfunctions that had come because of that happening in my family. And I can see that in my family still. And so I think the biggest thing is to to press in when someone is going through divorce or has experienced divorce and to not just leave it. Um, And I think that's true if someone comes into the church and you know they've been divorced too, to not just ignore that part of their life. There is a sensitive way to approach it, but being silent about it is hard. Makes it harder to figure out what to, how to move forward. So I want to, yeah, that's, I agree. I agree. I think, well, cause when my parents split up, it was kind of the same way with our church. They just like didn't talk about it. They kind of just abandoned us. There's no big deal. But, but rather than like, I know, I don't think that your answer wasn't good. I just think like, saying press in mm-hmm. like doesn't really make much sense to me. And so uh, like what if if you're if you're somebody who's gotten divorced or if you're some you're a child of somebody who's gotten divorced like you, Jill, what what would you expect or what would you have wanted the church to say to you? Somebody in the church to say to you. What would you have wanted them to do to mm-hmm. to press in or to reach out to you? Cuz that can be like such a weird thing is, is like you're going to go up to somebody and be like, so you're divorced. And then they're going to be like, what are you talking? Like, you don't want to just bring up like a weirdo. And so what do you say to to be more specific about mm-hmm. that? 
Uh, first of all, I I want to say one thing about sometimes how people appro- do approach it. Um, so as a child of divorce, I, I had people, I still now, I have people who know our family who say things like, I'm so mad at your parents for doing that to you or like, I can't believe X, Y, Z. And um, so some of it is, it feels like a lack of understanding of what God can do and how God can redeem and seeking reconciliation and unity in the family. It's sort of, I I think people mean that out of a, like, I have compassion on you. (laughs) Um, But that was over two decades ago. You know, that was like two decades ago for me. And it feels like that's still the defining thing. So it's similar to someone who goes through any sort of loss or any sort of pain. You, they might not want to talk, you don't have to talk specifically about their situation, but to say like, how are you doing? What, to hear from them what's going on and what they're thinking about. Um, Any, any way that you would minister or comfort or seek to learn more about what someone is going through and suffering. I think that's true for divorce as well. And that is then also acknowledging it as something as destructive as it is and harmful as it is. Even if it's like a morally okay situation, it's really devastating. And so to acknowledge it as suffering and to ask and see how the people are doing in that situation is important. Yeah. Nick, do you have anything to say to that? Yeah, I think that part of the issue here too is is that it partly depends on the age of the children, right? I think that for young kids, giving them places to go, just having more adults in their life is usually pretty beneficial. Um, kids often struggle with isolation. Also, kids um, struggle with, like, uh, particularly with younger kids, but this is true for kids of all ages, that it really... Um, it really destabilizes their moral view of the world because the most fundamental moral doctrine that a child grows up with is the greatest moral obligation that exists in my life is for my parents to stay together and love me, which is correct. That is a, a, a child has the right to live in a home where two parents love each other and love them. And so when that breaks down, the child's moral universe breaks down to a certain extent, or at least has the potential to, if they, the child like, being perceptive at all, which children usually are. So having more adults that are like morally cognizant and do their duties and care about having a moral view of the world is really good. I think also like just distracting them with something else to do, like times and and moments that are okay. Also remember that in America, I think that the number is still hovering something around 80% relative to um, women getting custody of the children. And, um, in the two studies that I read on um, fatherhood in America, um, book length studies I read recently, one of the things it says is that when you take a child out of a father's home, now obviously this is, I'm not saying children should be given to fathers. I'm just saying I, this is, I think this is an inevitable problem when parents are parted and they don't live in the same household. What happens is fathers tend to be less and less involved in their children's lives, right? And so what happens is, is that the, though the father sees themselves as a the father, they're just not there. Right. They don't come over the house. They don't contact their kids. Right. They see them when they see them, but that's pretty much it. And so, and that's just human nature. That's why men are supposed to live in the same house as their children with their wife. Because if they're not there, they can't do these things. Right. Because of that, the presence of real role models for divorced kids, especially to young divorced boys, is incredibly important. 
Right. And this is uh, it's con- like so, uh, some converse is true for women. Maybe Jill has some comments on that, but it's incredibly important for boys, especially as boys enter into the destructive period of, ad- of adolescence where they do some things that are destructive to themselves, to women and to um, the legal structures of our society at the property of others, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So that's just, I think a really important thing to remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To add to that and with just a few more practical examples, um, having models of the family together. So if you know someone who's from a divorced family, this has been helpful for me as an adult, as I raised my own family, to be with other families and see how they interact because that is a gap for me. I just, I feel like I don't, I just don't have anything there to imagine. Um, I do now because of the church and because of the relationships I've had, but to have mentors who are more than just um, one-on-one, and more than just the same gender mentor, but to have a family you can enter into, whether or not you're married and have kids, and whether or not you're an adult or a child. Uh, but if you don't have that picture, that's really, really helpful because you haven't seen the genders interact. You haven't, uh, for me, I've actually found, um, like as an adult, having uh, relationships with men in authority that are like with people who are have integrity, like our the pastors of our church, like Nick and Mike, um, that has been really healing for me because my assumption is that men are absent and aren't thinking about what is good for me. And so um, that's been really healing just to be interact with them and have relationships like that. Hmm. So I have a question, I think kind of, kind of, based off this last one we were talking about with people who have been divorced, how can, is there ever like a healthy amount of shame and guilt that somebody should have kids, parents who've been divorced? I know the, our culture right now is like any shame and guilt, you need to get rid of it all, all the time. But I think about like, even in my life with sin and I'm like, okay, when I sin, I feel <clears throat> shame and guilt. And that's kind of, in a lot of ways, what pushes me to, uh, pushes me to repentance than, than to stop doing that sin. And so is there ever a healthy amount of shame and guilt when in divorce? Because I think these two things might be different, you know, talking about parents who have been divorced and then kids of parents who have been divorced should they ever feel shame and guilt and then should the parents ever feel shame and guilt and is that healthy or not first i think it's helpful to define shame and guilt because i think in our culture the understanding is that guilt is good it's about a circumstance that you've done something wrong and shame is bad because it's it means that you think you are wrong as a person or like as your being okay. and i think that biblically shame is also purposeful um, in that we are sinners and we do things and we are, we need a savior. We are wrong. Um, So Nick, I don't know if you want to add anything to those understandings, but I think it's helpful to first of all, clarify what we mean by shame. I think that's right. I think, I think that, I think I think what you're saying is right, and I think it's important to recognize that though shame is a negative emotion, mm-hmm. um, there are times when it, it is the appropriate yeah. emotion, and it doesn't just mean generally 
you don't deserve to be loved. I'll, I'll Brene Brown, I think is her name, but it, it means that you, usually it means that you believe that contextually to a particular action that you took that, you know, an objective observer would rightly disapprove of. Mm-hmm. at least within your cultural context. And because of that, you did do something that other objective observers would say is wrong. And therefore, it's not that you're unworthy of love, but that you've demonstrated that you aren't trustworthy, that you aren't morally trustworthy. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you can't be loved. It just means that like you've shown yourself to be an unsafe person to other human beings who care about interpersonal safety in social contexts, which is all of their contexts. And so- you rightly feel ash- you're you're feeling ashamed because you have broken a very sacred interpersonal trust, right? And so, because because of that, like the definition matters because you can rehabilitate trust, right? What do you do with shame? Well, you look at what trust you've broken and you seek to rehabilitate that trust through restitution, through confession, through asking for forgiveness, through a redemptive process, mm-hmm. rather than all uh, some of these psychologists who just say it's a negative emotion, you should just put it away. Does that make sense? And when it right. is a yep. psychologically like you're if you're feeling shame just in a perceptionally wrong way because you just naturally feel shame all the time for ways that aren't correct then i think jill has struggled with this maybe you have a comment on this then then yes the the therapy is i don't need to feel ashamed but when it's that you broke a social contract relative to an objective moral observer because you did something wrong you have to seek restitution forgiveness and the things mm-hmm. that that alleviate um the thing that you did Does that make sense and that's the that if shame is not real, then the gospel isn't good news. <laughs> we need an answer for shame. Right. And so that's mm-hmm. it is negative. It's profoundly negative. And it, it, the purpose of it is to drive us to the cross for atonement and for the resolution of our shame. Um, but the question then is, whose shame is it? Are you carrying someone else's shame or shame that isn't yours that you can't ask or confess for, you know, to get restituted because it's not yours. It's just, that's illegitimate shame. Mm -hmm. So it does in this question, there is legitimate shame that is helpful. It's meant to be helpful, um, hopefully for reconciliation um, so that the person who is sinning against someone else or has sinned against someone else turns to Jesus and then also turns back to the people in their life. That's the hope of the shame. Um, and church discipline is actually for that purpose. It's not just to cancel someone. It's to, the hope is that they would be restored into the church and in this situation into the family. Um, so that's the purpose of church discipline. But then there is added shame that both the people who have been divorced, the parents, often the abandoned spouse and the children do feel that is not, I would say, is illegitimate shame. Um, but it's it makes sense that they feel it because it's put on them often. And it's confusing as a child when you're, you just see how people respond to you and how people respond to your family. And a child's natural assumption is that that means I'm something's wrong with me um, or that I am bad. And so that takes a lot of working through <laughs> later. Yeah. So I, Nick, you said that there's a trust that's been broken and, you know, we need to redeem and work towards redemption. And and that's right. I agree. But in the, in terms of divorce in, in certain circumstances, 
you can work towards redemption all you want, but if the other person wants nothing to do with you, you can't. And he, like you can't to to a certain extent. So how should those people then who are kind of like the victims of somebody who who doesn't care about the trust, who who doesn't care that there's something broken, they don't really care about any of that. That can live with people for a long, long time. They never could get past that. And so how can they in in some ways deal with that shame? in like a healthy way, but also recognizing that maybe I'm going to never, ever redeem this relationship or trust with this person. Right. Well, I think first it's important recognizing that dynamic, why it's so important to define shame correctly in our minds morally. Because if you believe that what you should do with shame is just get rid of the idea that like, it means that you don't deserve love. And of course you deserve love. Then you won't feel ashamed of things. And so you'll behave that way towards other people. And so um, it's important to define shame correctly, right? Secondly, shame persists persists if you understand it properly relative to whether or not you morally respond to it. So if you feel, let's say you get divorced because you really didn't do what you should have done in your marriage and you were partly responsible, maybe the other person was even more responsible, but you feel ashamed of it. The shame is supposed to persist relative to whether or not you do what you should do now. So the question is, did you try to reconcile? Did you try to have like a, non-combative relationship with the person like what are your moral obligations now do you how do you talk about your divorce do you talk about your divorce as like a personal failure or as something that you're perfectly justified in nobody should dare ever speak to you about it when you talk about do you say look this is what i wish i wish i could go back to myself at this age and say i should take this differently i should handle this differently i should focus on my relationship more do you like what do you do now and to that extent i think acting in a morally trustworthy way in the present if your shame is is in your heart for the right reason, should alleviate it. Like the the nature of moral mm-hmm. conscience is if you feel guilt and shame for the right reasons, you can act productively and do what's right, and those feelings can be alleviated. If you feel what the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians calls worldly sorrow or worldly shame, um, or guilt, then no matter what you do, it just gets worse. Right. Um, it's not it's not a productive emotion. And in that case, then you, that means you have a, a psychological problem, right? Not a moral problem. You've got to figure out why why can't you do what's right now? Like what mm-hmm. why is this why is this feeling immovable? And usually it's because you're you're thinking and feeling about it wrong. And then that's a psychological question. Mm-hmm. How do you get freed from that? Does that make sense? But in most cases, people want to become psychologically well, how do you? freed from what they are morally responsible to make up for or to repent of. And that's the bigger problem is that people want to be like psychologically absolved from a, from a moral feeling that they should deal with by dealing with something in their life. that's very hard to deal with. And that's going to be pretty painful. Right. That so, okay. How, how do you deal with, with the shame? That's not, that's psychological and not yours to bear. Yeah. 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 That I, I like, I don't even like, this is even a question that goes outside of divorce. <laughs> yes. This is just like yeah. a question. It's a, it's a completely that's general just human like, question. Right. Yeah. I, Jen, how, yeah. So. Well, I think it's also through atonement, but um, it's, and with, with the Lord, like you have to take it to Jesus. So that's very, a gen- very general statement, but I'd want to clarify that because we're talking about it as a psychological issue also, but it's also a theological issue. Going back to what Nick was saying about it's feeling that you are unwanted or unworthy of love. And so um, 
that is just theologically not true of you as a human. So that's the truth you have to reckon with and try to take from your brain to your heart. (laughs) Um, And so what's helpful, what's been helpful for me is um, knowing that I'm not believing the truth about myself and confessing that. So it's a different kind of confession, but confessing to God and other people what I believe wrongly about myself and then knowing what the truth is, but then doing the practices that help me live according to that truth. So there might be ways that I insecurely act because I believe the shame that isn't right about me in my mind. And I need to change my behavior to align with the truth about myself. And that takes a lot of practice, especially if you have believed this about yourself for a really long time and you hate yourself really deep inside. Um, But you have to start, (laughs) you have to know the truth and then live like it's true and then your mind and heart start. It steep, it seeps yeah. in deeper and deeper. I think it, what's mm-hmm. important relative to this this content today is that if you're a parent or a, a person who is married and you get divorced, then sorting through your responsibilities mm-hmm. relative to like what do you do now is how you're supposed to deal with shame. Yes. Um, that is acknowledge that you did something wrong in the past rather than justify it. So you aren't corrupting people in the present, other people who are dealing with these questions in real time, right? Also having as, as godly a relationship where you can with your former spouse and your children going the extra mile, all those, all those kinds of things, right? I'm seeking to deal with why you got divorced so that if you end up remarrying, you won't go through the same thing again, etc. right? If you're a child, right? I, I think if you're a divorced adult, it's more likely that you will be avoidant towards what you should really do to, to morally deal with shame that you deserve. And that you should then deal with the healing process of rebuilding social trust. If you are a child, the likelihood is the opposite. The likelihood is that you're going to feel shame like it was your fault or somehow you are unworthy of love or that you're a bad person. And that will be a psychological problem rather than a moral demand. And in that case, what's necessary is what we sometimes just call therapy. That is internal healing. Mm -hmm. You, You need to be healed in your understanding of what the world is and what the world is like and your place in it and and that this wasn't your fault and so on, mm-hmm. you know, especially somebody like, you know, Jill's a good example of this. Where like she had cancer. She could tell as a really small child that was really hard on her parents. She was the one who had cancer. So like as a kid, you're kind of like, oh, this is my fault. Right. Even though like that's never like nobody gets divorced because of their children. That's just not a, that's just not a reason. Like, yeah, that made your marriage hard. Something about your kids. And I think that some kids really struggle with this because they were terrible children. Like there are some kids that like didn't get sick, but they really were awful children. They were resistive. They were mean spirited. They were extremely difficult to parent. And that is very stressful on a marriage. And what that means is they really did contribute to their parents' divorce. However, it was their parents' responsibility to handle themselves, Mm -hmm. to deal with the difficulties of parenting, to deal with the effects that that would have on their relationship and to love each other and stay married, even if it meant letting the child go and do what he wanted to do and wreck his own life the way he wanted to, right? The The relationship was the prior, priority, not the child in that sense, mm-hmm. partly because you can't force a child to be different. And the marriage is, in a sense, a higher obligation than even the child. Does that make sense? It's your obligation as a parent to, to yeah. feed and care for and whatever, but not to make the child a certain kind of person. Yeah at the cost of destroying your relationship with your spouse. Does that make sense? 
And that could, in itself, that dynamic, children know, even if no one tells them, that their family is supposed to be together and that they're supposed to be with their parents. And if that breaks apart and they they see with actions, no matter what people are saying with their words, they see that, that the parents aren't choosing to stay together for them, for their sake. I mean, the child kind of gets lost in what's happening and a child will assume that something's wrong with them. So you might not feel as an as a child of divorce that, Oh yeah, that wasn't my fault. You might not feel that it was your fault, like logically, but that because mm-hmm. your parents literally said that when right. they left. Yes, this isn't your fault. That's what like, the guidance they counselors they made you tell go to you. A counselor. yeah. Right, right. <laughs> this isn't your fault. Yep. And what the child understands from that is these people don't understand what's happening in my family, or or that something's yeah. even more wrong with me because I shouldn't. This shouldn't be a problem for me if it's not my fault. Right. This isn't my problem, but I right. feel I don't know what to do with what I'm feeling. So. I want to say that for anyone. Well, part of it is that they say that, but they don't blame your parents. They don't say, this is not your fault. This right. is your parents' fault. Right. There's no one to they blame. They just say, so who's, it's not your fault. There's no it? one to blame. This just happens. Yes. It's just, it's like rain. It's just yes. one day, it just falls from the sky. Yep. And nobody can explain why it happens, but it's not your fault. And you're kind of like, well, who the heck's fault is it? Like, this mm-hmm. is crazy. Because you know, like, yeah. it's happening to you. And you know that they promised to stay together. And you know those things, right? So- yep. Mm-hmm. And that was just a little anecdote along with, with that. That was a saying in my family was that people change. And what that meant was not like, oh, yeah, people grow up and be different. And like, that's a good thing. It meant that people change and you don't know who's going to leave you. Basically, anything could happen. Anything could happen. Right. Yeah. And it's that's no what one's that means. fault. Anybody can leave yeah. you. Right. And so like that's destroyed most of my relationships, friendships. I mean, it's it's maybe not destroyed them, but severely impacted them because that is our cultural understanding. And that's, um, I mean, it's seeped in in so many ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You'll be better off if you assume that you could be abandoned at any moment when you cease to become useful to the person you have some relationship with. Mm -hmm. And that is like, it's hard to imagine a more inhuman way of living a life. That's, that's, I mean, to me, I don't, I, I, think that you guys are speaking about that in a negative way but to me i'm like that makes the most sense about anything and said in this podcast is that if you already have the idea that somebody's going to leave you or somebody's going to like you're already set up for success right there because people are just evil and they just do horrible things so they're and most of the time they're going to do that to you so in my life i've always had that mindset and i feel this is whatever i feel great about it and then people i might think i'm a psycho but it but it but it it works with like getting past when somebody leaves you i feel like you can get past things better i don't know if it's the healthiest or the best way to deal with life but it feels like i don't know when i'm listening to you say that i'm like that sounds like a like a good way of yeah. doing well, it is it's really good it's, it's like walking around with crutches you don't slip as much yeah but you also walk around with crutches all the time. You like, you can't run and you can't feel your legs. So it's like, it's, so, it's, yeah. right. it's a coping mechanism <laughs> that makes catastrophic loss that protects you from catastrophic loss, but it also keeps you from massive gains. So yep. like you can have a pretty good relationship, but you can't have like intimacy. Cause you can never miss someone. Like you, at some Nick, point you have to then, believe that other person is going to stay with you because they, okay. Maybe you can't, you. Mm-hmm. You can't miss someone. I get that. I well, get that. Well, you're not allowed to but miss someone in that. I've situation. seen people. Yeah. Right. I've seen people though that they'll lose somebody and it will take them like 10 years to get over it. And in that yeah. 10 years, they could have been doing things 
that are so productive and so good, but instead they're sitting there sulking and wasting their time, wishing that they had somebody that they're not going to have back. And that to me is inefficient and not effective. And it annoys Here's the tension. The tension is, okay, where is your security? So your security could be in the other person that you lose. And yeah, that is devastating in a way that you won't get over if your security never changes. And your security could be in yourself that I'm not going to be hurt. I'm untouchable if someone hurts me. Um, that's also not helpful. (laughs) So our security has to be in the fact that we are never abandoned by the Lord and he gives gifts and he gives us people to cherish. He has told us how to live and how to have relationships for our flourishing. And that will be painful when people hurt us in them. And it will be joyful when it's really rich and, and fulfilling. Um, so it just what, it just what, depends sorry. on where your security is in relationship with other yeah, people. Yeah, one way to think about this in terms of analogy, and I'll use secular terms, but this is this is can be applied really spiritually. Is is like think about your physical human skin. Like one of, one of the largest organs in your body is of course your skin, right? And it is it is cuttable. Like you get cuts all the time, right? But it's it's actually pretty dang good at not getting cut, right? But one of the things that's cool about it is because it's soft, you can feel things. Like you, we, our body could have been plated in some kind of stone, which where we would have almost never gotten cuts, but we couldn't feel anything. Right. The, the reason why our skin is such an incredible organ is because it's soft enough to feel. And then it's yet tough enough to not get cut easily. And when it does get cut, it has the capacity to repair. And the human psychology is like that as well. Right. That like on one level, we have to have a certain amount of separation from people so that we're not codependent. Like I am me and you are you are not the same person. And there's a certain amount of emotional toughness there that when when you're you're upset about something, I'm not just as upset at you. Like it's kind of like the skin as a barrier that doesn't get cut easily. However, it's also soft and it can feel so like I can have a relationship with you and we can have like you can be excited about something and I can get excited about it too and I'm experiencing joy together with you in the synergy of our relationship and if I'm too avoidant if I'm too disconnected from you that can't happen it only happens through interpersonal intimacy now why can I risk that right the reason I can risk that is if for some reason I get cut I have the capacity to heal that is I can mourn and cry and I can go through a process by which I feel pain but the pain doesn't last forever, right? Like I let go, I heal, I get back to a, like my skin grows back, I get a scab, it falls off, I have new skin that's sensitive and then it toughens and then I'm fine, right? And that process of human mourning, so I know like that somebody in my life could leave me, but I also know that I can go through that process of healing, that I'll be hurt, that I'll cry, that I'll 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 have to let go, that I'll have to trust God. Like I and I'll, and, but ultimately I'll get better. So believing that like you have a barrier because you're different, a differentiated self, right? But you have intimacy, you're, you could deeply connect and feel. And if you get hurt, you can heal and recover. Mm-hmm. Having that kind of relationship is that sweet spot of a real emotional capacity in life. If you are too connected to others and there's no skin barrier, you're always getting cut. You're always in the emotions of other people. You're codependent. You're what people call anxious in your intimacy or bonding with other people, right? If you are, if you have too strong a skin so that you can't feel, your calluses are too thick, you're what's called avoidant, right? You're like, you're pulling back and you're telling yourself you don't need other people. But in being avoidant, you don't fully emotionally engage with other people in ways that bring deep and lasting intimacy and joy. You can have some things like you can joke around with people and kind of enjoy them, but you don't have the real pleasures of deep 
intimacy. Or when you are intimate, your intimate becomes overly anxious, right? So this would be guys that like don't need anybody, but they have to have sex with their wife like every single day, not because their libido is super high, but because they have to be affirmed by that woman every single day because they feel so scared and they don't even know why they're doing it. They just think they're a man with a lot of testosterone, right? Like those kind of dynamics. And so finding that sweet spot of like being differentiated, being able to connect with intimacy and knowing you have the capacity to heal if you get hurt is fundamental to good psychological health. And that applies to everything, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Forming relationships, having relationships, having intimate relationships, having romantic relationships, parenting well, loving your children, letting your children go, having like all of it, every single thing. And ultimately, in some ways, your relationship with God, because even God will do things that are right, but you'll misunderstand and they'll hurt you. And then you have to like heal and come back into right intimacy with God, even though he didn't do anything wrong. You just misunderstood it, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is very, that is true for every human as it relates to divorce and marriage. Those are the kind of relational dynamics that you might not understand because of your experience in life and that those experiences feel like truth and they are reality. They have, I mean, they really happened. Mm-hmm. Um, they are truth in that sense, but those are the types of things to relearn in the context of the church through the understanding of the God and application of the gospel that you, that you might have to try extra hard at understanding if you've experienced divorce, either yourself or you're a child of divorce. Yeah. And the correlate to that, that's really important is that that's why virtual church isn't going to do it. Yes. Because a lot of those things that are really deep inside you, like emotionally, they get best helped in actual real contact with other people in proximate, immediate, felt, physical relationship where you're talking, hearing, listening, watching body language, smelling pheromones, like the whole bit. Like you have to be literally with people in their homes, at church, at meals, in ministries, in like have being mentored. Like, and that's why the virtual, that's why virtual interaction, um, there's a number of things, especially a lot of them relative to human healing that just, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. A lot of the joys and developmental necessities of human life and a lot of spiritual realities are are incredibly hampered by using only virtual means, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so that's why virtual church can't do it because you have to actually be around those people who show you love and you have to watch, you have to like be in that home and watch that married couple interact and, and realize that these two are fulfilling their obligations mm-hmm. to each other. They're doing it freely. They do love each other. And you like... There's a way you feel it being in that room and being at that dinner table that you cannot feel any other way. And it's healing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It's why, One specific think about this. example. What is, what is the fundamental, think about that. What is the fundamental human social value in Christianity? The like absolute command, right? It's love. And the main way that that is demonstrated in, in the Bible is through hospitality. That's literally the opposite of virtuality. It's just literally the opposite. Mm-hmm. The fundamental human Christian virtue in practice is hospitality. Virtuality is literally the opposite of it. So Christians can use all kinds of virtual means. We're using one right now, obviously, right? To convey information, right? There's certain things that virtual stuff is really good for, but the fundamentally most truly human things, it's terrible for. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons why there's so much so much social and psychological problems during the pandemic year. Mm-hmm. And even just since like 
kids started getting like people started getting smartphones and stuff like that and the rise of technology that's yeah. just things have just gotten worse Jill, you were going to give an example of mm-hmm. of something well first to well, add to what nick was saying um i also i want to add that it's going to be really hard especially if you feel like you don't know how to have those kinds of relationships with people maybe because mm-hmm. you've experienced divorce that i think that's a lot of why hospitality having yeah, people lots of, lots of reasons yeah right? but lots mm-hmm. of reasons but hospitality yeah. used to freak me out like i would get so nervous having someone in my house because a lot of my experiences were that my home was really shameful growing up and so um so i want to say that yes we need that's part of the healing but it's going to feel terrible for a little while but you need it so pursue it even if it's really scary um and just one example of this uh, playing out in my life is that it was really helpful for me to see couples um, have conflict and like in front of me <laughs> and mm-hmm. not maybe not like these huge, it wasn't huge fights, but in my family, there was no conflict, but people just left after a while. So, yeah. so to see someone, that's like the worst possible scenario. <laughs> yeah. That maybe that's the worst scenario, <laughs> yeah. but um, I think, my point is that like we kind of just want to separate even more. If you've had some of these experiences, you you will keep drawing back if you don't intentionally pursue hospitality, mm-hmm. hospitality or you don't intentionally pursue these kinds of relationships that are going to freak you out. Um, but it was, that was one way that was so healing to me to see a couple like disagree with each other and then be fine, like carry on <laughs> with their day like nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And um it taught me how to do that in my own marriage. And that's like changing generations of patterns in my family just with that. So open your homes and pursue those kinds of relationships. It's really important. Mm-hmm. I think, and then on the flip side of that, cause I think you're 1000% right. I think for me though, like pursuing that is like comes more naturally or even pursuing like conflict that comes more naturally for somebody like me. And uh, I think like maybe for more people who are conflict driven to like to just be okay, because I think I I have like a bent towards trying to control a different person to being to thinking like me, like it's like I get into an argument with somebody and it like bothers me if they don't agree with me at the end of it. It, Like it really bothers me a Mm -hmm. lot. Um, But then God's just like, dude, shut up like that. It's it's okay if they don't agree with you. Like it's still a person. And so like on the other side of that, if you get into conflict, knowing when to just stop and be okay with somebody not agreeing with you and not having them not like turn them into a robot or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, I think they're both sides of it are. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's really true. Like that one of the things that's very fundamental to marriage is loving somebody you will disagree with, and I, I think that's part of the nature of being married to a woman if you're a man, and being married to a man if you're a woman. I I don't know if this is different for gay couples. I I mean, within a biblical parameter, obviously this isn't an issue because the Bible does not condone such unions. But like, it's kind of weird to be married to a woman because she's all like just all the time. My wife is a woman. It's just she's a woman just constantly, and. Hmm women and men just are not interchangeable. I don't care what people say. It's just not true. Um, and my wife and I are pretty stereotypically in some ways, male and female. I'm interested in male things. She's in traditionally female things very much. And so we just look at each other. We just are like, what are you? You know, like what? And then you just, you just decide what you're going to do in your disagreement. And then you do it. And then you have to choose the other person to accept them and to love them and have affection for them. And that's frankly, honestly, that's what teaches you how to love. I mean, that's what love is. I mean, love, <laughs> 
right? And so, um, well, Nick. Well, uh, Jordan Peterson talks about having somebody to contend with. He talks about he was talking about like if he believes in God, and he ended up getting into this like rant about marriage and just like how. You know, you don't want to get married to somebody that you don't contend with because you're going to get really bored of that after like a couple of weeks or like he joked, like maybe like a month or two because it'd be nice. But after that, you know, you're just like, okay, you want somebody to contend with because it makes you both better at the end of the day. And I I always remember, you know, listening to that and being like, that makes a whole ton of sense. Uh, And why part part of why marriage is so important is that you're you're kind of you love this person, but you're put into this union with them. And at the end of the day, you're forced to contend with them in a way, in a healthy way. That's going to like make both of you in a, in a godly marriage, bring yeah. both of you towards mm-hmm. Christ. And I think that's just a, a big, big thing. Yeah. Because here's so, yeah, what's, I, I agree. here's what's true. Going back to that phrase, people change. The truth is that people do change and we disagree with them and we can't control them, but God created it so that we don't leave each other <laughs> and that we love each other and we are mm-hmm. better when that is true. The goal of marriage is that we would change and become more like Christ. And in Ephesians 5, it talks about mm-hmm. the husband presenting his wife um, and as like this godly, beautiful, transformed thing. And that that's the goal of marriage is that we would make each other better. Um, so it's, it's just so interesting that like that concept has gotten distorted, that people will change and it will right it will hurt you. Um, and that is, that can be true as well. But the goal is that it's this really fruitful, beautiful thing. The question seems, or it seems like, or it feels like it's inevitable in marriage that people are going to change. The question is, are you going to change to be more like Christ? Or are you going to be changed to resent right. the other person more? And that that's the bottom line. So, yeah. Um, one, one more question. And then we can end this that I can't remember if I asked it in the last one or not. But after you get divorced, after somebody's divorced, is it okay for them to go and get married again? I can't even remember if I asked that in the last one, and I don't know how long it's going to take to answer. That's a, <laughs> go that's ahead. A big question. I think my stepdad wrote a thesis paper on that, actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a big question. Yeah. Jill's stepdad is, has, has a very similar view as Maggie. Yes. Let me go. I guess, I guess last week. Yeah, so there's... Um, there are three answers to this. Um, one is that divorce and remarriage are not connected and that if you divorce, you cannot get remarried, right? That's one view. It's it's the vast majority view now. And I've, ne- I've never been able to make sense of it. In order for that view to make sense of scripture, you have to assume some things that I think were assumed in like the 1950s that are not generally assumed now. And you can't rebuild from the biblical text itself as far as I can tell. The second is that if you get divorced, you can automatically get remarried. Like if you, if, if the government issues you a divorce paper, then you can get remarried. I don't see why the government's regulation of marriage has anything to do with what a Christian should or shouldn't do, frankly. Um, and there has never been a direct parallel between the, the governmental um, adjudication of marriage and the Christian teaching on marriage, right? And so um, what, what God seems to say is, is that the, um, the marriage covenant um, – if it if you divorce for a biblical reason, a reason that is affirmed in Scripture, then you can get remarried without committing adultery. So if uh, if if um, it's if you get if you get divorced because of adultery, then the marriage covenant has already been broken because of adultery. The other person has proven to be the adulterer, and 
it is it's okay. and so the marriage is already broken because of adultery right if the person abandons you um and it falls under that abandonment regulation what it seems to mean is it, what the apostle Paul said is a believer is not bound in such circumstances i think that means not bound to the marriage i don't see how it could mean anything else and so i think it means that that person can be divorced and remarried so i think if you are if you get divorced for a biblically affirmed reason i think you can get remarried if you get divorced for a reason that is not biblical then i think you are morally obligated to pursue your former spouse if that former spouse marries someone then I think you're released from that obligation. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. Hmm. Um, okay. Yeah. That's also my understanding. Shall, do you have anything yeah. That's to... my understanding of Great. what is biblical as well. Great. I have no idea. So I'm just going to take your guys' word for it. Um, I think that's about it for the end of the, like, I think we're going to wrap this up the whole conversation about divorce, but do you guys have any like, uh, you know, final thoughts or closing statements that you want to make just on the, on the, this whole big broad uh, topic of divorce in the last two episodes that we've talked about? I mean, I, I would just, I just want to say that like, whenever you listen about divorce, right, you have to realize that everything is, that it's one of those deals where there's some subjects where you talk about them and everything is subject to misunderstanding. If the misunderstanding is willful enough. Right. If you're like, if, for example, like if you had a marriage and you were abused in that marriage, like legit, like seriously abused and you ended up getting divorced and people didn't believe you or understand it. Your natural way of hearing everything is to be upset about the fact that there are women who are getting abused and like now you don't care about them. And this is so mean. Right. That's no, that's normal. But what you got to do is to be mature. You have to realize that's how you hear stuff. Right. And you need to realize when they are or are not saying that. Right. You should usually assume that when people are talking, they are not saying what they are not saying. It's, it's generally a fair way to think about other people. And so as a Christian pastor, it is my job to both speak in highly restrictive terms relative to divorce and to tell people that they're not allowed to do it in the vast majority of circumstances. In the vast majority of times when people want divorces, they should not get them if they are believers or if they are humans, morally speaking. In some cases, they should or can. And that is a relative thing that is a that has to be understood in the in the context of a particular case. If you get divorced, one of the things you have to recognize in the Christian church is you want your pastor to talk about divorce. You want your pastor to say that it's not good. You want your pastor to teach against it because you don't your kids you don't want your kids growing up in the church to get divorced. You, you want all these other people in the church not to experience all the pain you experienced, right? You want to see like marriage retreats and the pastor talking about enriching your marriage, even though you're divorced and it hurts your feelings. You want that. And you in the church, you want to talk as though divorce is a terrible thing and that you're really sad that it happened in your life and that, man, you, if you could have done anything to prevent it, you would have. You as a divorce person should be supporting that Christian doctrine of marriage. And yet you want your, like, so I try to be personally very compassionate with people who have been divorced and publicly very straightforward in pushing back against divorce culture. Because when you speak publicly as a leader, you have to, you have to answer the question, in what way should I be a statesman? Do I just need to be careful what I say? And secondly, in what way do I need to speak against the purveyance of the time? What's the purveyance of the time? That's always the question. Is the purveyance of the time that it's totally fine to get divorced, you can get divorced, like nobody should tell you you should stay married, or is the purveyance of the time very restrictive about marriage and that I should be more speak more about the openness we should have to divorce? Well, I think it's very clear, biblically speaking, that we are way more okay with divorce than is biblically, like biblically um, affirmed by God. And therefore, the purveyance of my teaching has to be against that. If I don't do that, I'm not doing my job. 
And so as we try to listen to people who lead us in the church, we have to realize that's their job, right? And if you get divorced, one of the best things you can do is be supportive of your pastor and your elders and how they teach and preach about divorce. But if you're a teacher and a preacher, you need to be like compassionate about people who are divorced who have to work really hard to do that, right? And single people are in a similar situation sometimes in churches where like, I have to teach a lot about divorce and parenting and all that, or marriage and parenting and all that kind of stuff. And they sometimes feel left out when that's happening. Even And, and it's not just preparation for when they're going to get married because they don't know if they're going to get married. And those people have to like endure that and they should. They should be supportive of it. But at the same time, I need to make sure I don't forget about single people. I'm compassionate to them and that I talk about their experience as well. You know, and that relationship is one that has to be fostered through love and compassion and godliness and mutual service, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jill, do you have anything you want to mm-hmm. say? Yes. Just a word of exhortation for you if you've experienced divorce in your family, experienced divorce in your family. Um, first, that remember as Christians, we are going to be misunderstood like personally, even by people in the church um, and people who don't know our life completely. And so um, that gets at some of what Nick is saying. But if you focus on being able to fully face the Lord with your whole self, and if you can't do that, work through the shame that you feel, but let that be your goal um, in whatever has happened to you. And because when you can face the Lord like that, um, I mean, he's going to redeem anything in your life. You could, you might not get remarried to your spouse, but he can do so many beautiful, good things out of things that are, um, that were bad and wrong and devastating. And so, um, yeah, I just want to encourage you to let that be your goal instead of being this, or instead of being understood by everyone and your situation, seek people to be in your life, seek to face the Lord and, and pray for what he would do in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's, we're just going to wrap it up right here. But I do, I do think if you're listening to this, this is a, and it's a tough topic. Um, and you ever want to reach out to somebody, I know, you know, Nick and Jill, they work at high point can reach out to him and talk to him about this. Um, but yeah, I think that that kind of wraps up the whole topic of, of divorce. We didn't, we didn't hit every single part of divorce because there's millions of nuances to every different mm-hmm. situation. But, but I think we did the best that we could to kind of, kind of talk about this in a biblical way. Um, and so with that being said, I think that's it. Make sure to like, and subscribe and share and follow and all those fun things. Um, but we'll be back soon with, with new podcasts. So thank you guys for listening and we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye. Yep, we'll see.